name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. It seems it started for me when I was just a little boy, but I've had a problem throwing rocks at people. When I was five years old, I stood on the side of the road and threw a rock at a car. Fortunately for, for them, I missed. And fortunately for me, unfortunately for me, they turned around and came back and told my daddy. And I got a big whooping. At the age of 11, I threw a rock at another boy on my block. And, uh, and he was throwing back at me. I wasn't alone in that. And uh, fortunately for him, I missed, but unfortunately for me, he did not miss. And I remember he hit me in the head, and I mean, I was bleeding everywhere from that rock. As best I can remember, though, those are the only two rocks that I've, I've thrown at, at people. Now, I threw darts at my brother. I shot him with a BB gun, but that doesn't count. That doesn't count. But, as, but I want you to know that's probably not the only stone I've thrown at people since then. In our study of the Gospel of John, we've, uh, we've come to a story where a woman is about to be stoned. You see, it was a common form of, of execution back then for people to pick up stones and throw them at people until, until they died. The first Christian martyr, the first Christian martyr was a man named Stephen, and he was stoned to death. I would say he was murdered because I don't think his, his killing was a judicial killing. But folks picked up stones and they aimed them at Stephen and they threw him at Stephen until he died. I would imagine uh, that people back then in a stoning were aiming for the head, hoping to get a head blow with a stone. The Apostle Paul was stoned and he was left for dead on one of his missionary trips, but he survived. In our story today, the woman at the center of it has been caught in a sin that the Old Testament demanded that she be, that she be killed and actually uh, her partner be, be killed. And so some men had come and brought this woman to Jesus with every intention of killing her by stoning her to death. Let me pray again for us. So, Lord, now as we, as we open your book, I pray that you would be our teacher. And, Lord, that we would walk away this morning with, with you just uh, speaking to our hearts, resonating your truth in our being so that we leave here wanting to, to be different, wanting to be like Jesus, wanting to follow his, his footsteps to be like him. So help us with this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 8, verse 1. Then each one went to his house... Excuse me, that's actually the last verse of chapter 7. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he went to the temple again, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. I have debated, as I have in the past, over, over talking about this passage, um, talking about an aspect of this passage that is important, I think, for us to know, but maybe not it's immaterial to the story itself. Uh, and I've decided again to talk about it, and I want to talk about it because so many of our young people will go off to college one day, and I don't want them to be confronted with what I'm going to share for the very first time, and then feel like, wow, Pastor Jimmy and my parents and my church doesn't know anything, and so now I know the truth, and it might just upset them, or might... Uh, 
if you would, cause them to stumble. So what I am talking about is that this story that I just read, this story that we're beginning to read, that we're going to read this morning, John chapter 8, 1 through 11, actually beginning with the last verse of the previous chapter, this story was probably not original to John's gospel. Meaning, John probably did not write this. It most seems like assuredly it was not found in this particular location in the Gospel of John. It's not found in the oldest manuscripts uh, of our Bible. It's not mentioned by any church father until we get to the 12th century. It's found in over 900 different manuscripts. And in case you do not know this, there's more manuscript evidence for the validity and for the authenticity and for the, the um, what's the word I'm looking for, for the truthfulness of what we have as being what was written. There's more manuscript evidence for that than any of the, of the uh, writings that have, have come down from antiquity. But of the 900 manuscripts that we have that has this passage in John, it has them located, has it located at different places. It's located after verse 36. It's located after verse 44. It's located after verse 52 in different manuscripts. It's even located in chapter 21 after verse 25, which is in the, pa- the, the final Passion Week of Jesus. We are, you'll remember that we are months out, out from, six months at least, out from the Passover at the Festival of the Booths. One manuscript evidence, one manuscript that survived even has this story in, the, in Luke's Gospel in chapter 21 after verse 33. 38. And, and quite honestly, as a story, it fits better in the synoptics than it does in John's gospel, meaning that it's more similar to what we find in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke than maybe what we find in John's gospel. However, having said that, listen carefully to what I'm going to say. Most all Bible scholars who affirm that God has inspired his Bible believe that this is a true and authentic story. And it has been included in the Bible because it has been passed down by oral tradition. If you will remember, if you will remember, all of there was no there was no Bible at the beginning. These are letters that were written and gospels that were written specifically for the purpose of telling us about Jesus. But there is no writing as we understand writing today in our Western sieve. And so this is a story that has been passed down uh, through oral tradition. And again, everyone who affirms the, the truthfulness of the Word of God affirms that this is a true story. It's a true story as we'll see in what happens in it, right? But it's also such an incredible story that it's obviously been passed down from generation to generation and at some point it was included in in our Bible. We can, uh, you know, we could suggest or we could, uh, if you would, speculate that John added it later on to his gospel or, or that someone did, but this is a story that merits being in the Bible. Most scholars agree it to be a, a true story. So with that being said, if the story happened where it's placed in our Bibles in John chapter 8, then it's after the festival of the tabernacles, right at the very end of that. If it, if it lands actually in the, in the Passover week, because we find it sometimes in John's gospel in the Passover week when, when Jesus is back in Jerusalem again. Remember, he's there now and he's going to leave and he will not be back for six months. And when he comes back in six months, he'll, he'll be there for the final week of his life and for his crucifixion and his resurrection. Everybody following that? So this story could be in the last week of the Passover or it could be some other time in Jesus' ministry. 
But in the story, we learn that Jesus leaves Jerusalem and goes out to the Mount of Olives where he spends the night. Jesus spent the night in the Mount of Olives, or he spent the night over near Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, quite often. That is where Lazarus and Mary and Martha lived. And it seems, seems reasonable, I think, to speculate that, that Jesus would spend the night with them quite often, that he would stay with them. And you know, in the, the final night before his crucifixion, he actually just goes to the Mount of Olives and he's in the, excuse me, in the, in the olive grove there, spending the night out in the olive grove. So maybe they're camping out there as well. But he stays out there during the night and it says that early in the next morning, he gets up and he comes back into Jerusalem and he goes to the temple where he begins to teach. Verse 3, then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law of Moses commanded us to, the law of Moses commanded us to stone such woman, women. So what do you say? They asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. As Jesus begins to teach, the Pharisees drag this woman into the center of the temple court where he is, and they accuse her of adultery. They, uh, they say they've caught her in the act. Now, one thing to remember that probably catching someone in the act of adultery would not be an easy feat, right? Especially in a day where there's no cameras and all that kind of stuff that we have today. That has led many people to, to suspect that she was set up that maybe even one of them was the man who was involved in the situation simply to seduce her for the purpose of setting this up so that they could trap Jesus. Now I have no idea whether that's the case or not, whether they actually came upon this and, and it was caught. Um, you know, it's just, it's just not clear. What is clear is, though, that she is guilty and she is guilty of a sin that required the death penalty. In Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, if a man commits adultery with a married woman, if he commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. Now John tells us that they brought the woman to the temple to seek her death and, and to seek Jesus' input on this. Now the text also tells us, however, that they're not really wanting to know what Jesus thinks. They're actually there simply to catch Jesus in a, in a conundrum where they can accuse him, where they can use this against him. And obviously Jesus is on the horns of a dilemma, if you would. If he says, yes, you guys, should, you guys should kill her because she was caught in adultery. If he says that, then, then all the people would say, well, what about this compassionate Jesus that we've been following? Where's his compassion in this particular case? And, uh, or if he said, no, you should not kill her, then he's setting aside the law of Moses. And so he's sort of caught on, on the horns of this particular dilemma. Now, again, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, that... It's interesting that the man is not there. You do notice that, right, that they only bring the woman. And, and of course, Leviticus says that the man was to be put to death as well. And so, or the other party was to be put to death as well. And so that's led some people to believe that the man might have been involved. You know, again, we're just speculating. Why was the man not there? You know, again, maybe he was involved. Maybe this has just been a trap and just been a conspiracy that they've, they've set this woman up and, and the man, they've let him go. Or it could be maybe they've already killed the man. Maybe they already executed the man. That, that is a possibility. They tried to catch Jesus in such traps all the time. 
You remember the one about the coin? You know, hey, should we give, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And, and again, they thought they had Jesus on, on, these, on these horns of a dilemma so that he could not answer. If he said yes, then, then the people would be against him. If he said no, then Rome would say, hey, you're, you're treasonous, and they would come against him. In both cases, I think his detractors thought they had him. <laughs> they really thought they had Jesus in a place where he could not get out. And this, that's what makes this story so wonderful and, and so proving of, of the person of Jesus is how he gets out of these situations that they, that they put him that they put him in. Chapter, uh, verse 6. So they, they, they bring her. They say, what should we do about this? They keep pressing him. Verse 6. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. And when they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and he said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first one to throw a stone at her. And then he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. So Jesus doesn't respond to them. He's teaching. They come. They bring these accusations. They're yelling at him. And he does not say anything. Doesn't, doesn't, doesn't utter a word. And then he, almost like ignoring them, he stoops down in the dirt and begins to write in the dirt. And it says that the Pharisees and those who brought the woman, they continue to pester him for an answer. I, I can only imagine that they thought they had him. You know, They thought they had him. And the reason he's ignoring them, the reason they're pressing him is because he's not answering because he doesn't have an answer to them. How badly they misinterpret his silence. His silence is not that he's stumped. Now people suggest several things about what Jesus did when he wrote into the sand, wrote into the dirt that day. You know, uh, it's been suggested, well, let's talk about what he wrote in just a minute, but can I tell you, here's why I think Jesus did that. I, I didn't come up with this, but I think this, this brother who, who, just, who saw this is right. I, I think he wrote in the sand, maybe, to take the attention off the woman. Remember, they've brought her. Didn't it say she's in the center of everything? All the attention is on her. They're there to shame her. But yet Jesus, when he kneels into the, into the dirt, it's even portrayed, I think, in some of the, the movies that we see, you know, some of the depictions of the story. You know, the attention now turns to Jesus and away from the woman. So some have suggested Jesus did that in, in his kindness to take the attention off the woman. I don't know. But, but he begins to write in the dirt, and people have imagined, you know, what did he write in the dirt? And maybe you've thought about that. I know I've thought about that. What, what did he write in the dirt? Maybe he, was, maybe he was writing their names and their sin, you know? Maybe he was just writing a litany of sexual sins. Maybe he wasn't writing anything at all. You know, we, we just don't know. But when he finishes writing whatever he's doodling in the, in the dirt, he stands up and he says, okay, whoever is the one, whoever is without sin here, cast the first stone. And, uh, and in spite their evil intentions, the, these men, they, they are right in bringing the Mosaic law and its penalty upon this woman. See, I mean, we, we look at this through Western eyes, right? We, we're, we're looking at it through, through a, a history since Jesus, right? And, but they are in their right to put this woman to death judicially because of her sin. And, and so when Jesus stands up and he says, the one who's without sin cast the first stone, I want to suggest to you that he's not saying what we often think. Hey, the one of you who hasn't ever gossiped, you throw the first stone. Or the one of you who hasn't ever 
you know, yelled at your spouse or misbehaved in some way. You throw, I don't think that's what he's saying. I think that Jesus has to be saying to them, who's ever without guilt in this particular issue or this particular event, you throw the first, you throw the first stone. I mean, it just kind of shows how masterfully, you know, Jesus deals with all of this. He's not denying the woman's guilt. He actually says, the one who's without sin, throw the first stone. So he's not saying, don't punish her. But, but he is bringing up something that evidently they are ignoring. And that is, and let me read it to you. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 17. Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. The hands of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hands of all people. So you shall put away the evil from among you. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 6 through 7. So Jesus doesn't, doesn't say you should not punish the sin. He simply reminds them of the whole extent of the law, which is that it takes two or three witnesses, and maybe what he was doodling in the maybe what he was doodling in the in the sand was two or three witnesses. Maybe he wrote that out there for them. Maybe they didn't have two or three witnesses. Maybe he's writing a litany of the very same uh, a litany of sexual sins that maybe all of them are guilty of. Maybe he knows it's a conspiracy and he's writing all of their names because they've all been involved in it. And he says, the one of you who's not involved in this issue, you throw the first stone. So Jesus is not setting aside the law. Jesus is, if you would, giving a whole perspective on the law. And he says, it takes two or three witnesses. And the one of you who's guiltless in this, the one who's the witness to this, you throw the first, you throw the first stone. Now, verse nine, when they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the center. What happened next has got to be a God thing, everybody. It's got to be something that's brought about by the Holy Spirit. And, and I, I simply mean by that, Jesus would tell us of his spirit, that his spirit is the one that brings conviction on our lives. He brings conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so, I mean, it, it seems absolutely logical and obvious that what the Spirit of God did in that moment was He brought conviction on all of those men who had rocks in their hands. And beginning with the oldest one, you know, uh, and again, if he's writing, you know, if he's writing a lit litany of sexual sins on the ground, you know, may maybe, maybe they're the most guilty of that. Maybe they've been guilty of the very same sin that she's about to be stoned for. I I'm not sure how God did it, but he brought such conviction on their hearts that one by one, the men dropped their stones and they left. They didn't even stay there. So great was their conviction. They didn't stay to see what happened. They left. They dropped their stones, every one of them. Verse 10. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, Woman, where are they? No one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. Now what happens next is the crux of the story because Jesus says, where, where are your accusers? Where are the ones that wanted to throw rocks at you? Is anyone left? And she says, no, Lord, nobody's left. And then he says this, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. 
She's a free woman. The, the woman will not be condemned. Jesus will not condemn her. Those men who had brought this charge, they're not going to condemn her. He does not tell her that her sins are forgiven. Although I, I can't imagine her not coming to faith in Jesus at some point in the future or even that very day. But, but he tells her, go and sin no more. She arrived there on the verge of, she was not on the verge of, she was on the verge of being executed. She'd already been condemned by others. And now she leaves a different woman. She, she leaves a free woman. And I, I think a forgiven woman and, and definitely a not condemned woman. Well, that's the story, and, and I could talk to you about how, how wonderful Jesus is. I mean, doesn't this story just make you so proud of our Savior and His ability to, you know, to just take truth and use it in such a way that disarms people that are seeking to do bad? I, I just, I love this story. I'm sure this is why this story survived, because it's true and because it just shows the magnificence of our Savior. So I could talk about Jesus, I could talk about His mercy, I could, you know. But here's what I want to talk about this morning for the rest of my time. And, and actually, I think we'll probably get out of here early, but no promises. So um, I, um, I, I want to I talk about an aspect that is in this story that I think is all too often among us. And that is this. Others may condemn hurting and sinful people like those men did. But of all the people in the world, all the people in the world, we should not be among them. We should not be among them because we were guilty, judged. We were waiting execution, the execution, the penalty of death. But God delivered us from that. We have been forgiven. We now await the hope of the resurrection from our death. And in spite of, of all of that, we're still too often hurling stones of condemnation at other people. Now you might say this story, you know, Jimmy, you're going to take this story in a, in a way that it's not meant to be. I, I disagree because of what Jesus said to the woman. He said, where are those that condemn you? Are there none left? And she said, no. And he said, neither do I condemn you. So here's my thought. If the, if the Almighty Creator of all that we know and see would humble Himself and become human like us, take on our humanity, and then He'd walk the earth, and in the time that He's walking on the planet, He would say, I don't condemn you. Then, then why do we do that? Some years ago, this is before the sexual revolution. This is at the beginning when, when things are just beginning to, to change and unravel in our society and culture. Philip Yancey happened to be in D.C. for a 300,000-person gay rights activist march. And he was standing on the sidelines directly in front of the White House when, it's, when the confrontation started with about 40 mounted police circling this group of protesters who were all outspoken Christians. Thanks to a huge orange posters announcing hellfire, the tiny knot of Christians was attracting most of the press photographers. The believers began shouting, shame on you for what you do, shame on you for what you do. Then they switched, AIDS, AIDS, it's coming your way. And Yancey, along with everyone else in the crowd, had seen this group of marchers at the head of the column. They were the people with AIDS. 
They were the people, he writes, that were in wheelchairs, that were covered with purple sores and gaunt faces. And Philip Yancey couldn't imagine how anyone could wish that fate on another human being. How did the marchers respond to the Christians? Now listen, some taunted or mocked them, but one group came to the spot, stopped and faced them, and began to sing, Jesus loves you, this we know, for the Bible tells us so. And Philip Yancey would write, The irony was unsettling. On the one side were the righteous Christians. On the other side were the sinners, many who openly admitted homosexuality. One, one side spewed out hate and condemnation, and the other sang of Jesus' love. But it's not just the lost that we criticize as Christians. It's often each other, isn't it? Here's a story from not my personal life, but a story from my lifetime. And it reminds me of Barnabas, if I could. It reminds me of Barnabas going after Paul. I remember when Paul became a believer and nobody wanted to trust him and Barnabas went to get him. The story sort of reminds me of that. And this is the story of Jim Baker. Those of you that are my age, you remember Jim Baker. He was... Uh, the founder of the PTL Club, he was a TV evangelist, and he absconded with lots of people's money. Uh, he had a, an adulterous uh, affair, and he fell into grievous sin, and most of the Christian world condemned him, didn't want to have anything to do with him. He, he went to prison for, for what he did for over five years. But Franklin Graham, let me tell you something about Franklin Graham. Franklin Graham and the whole Graham family saw this differently. So... When This is from Jim's autobiography after he got out of prison and whatever. He said, and I quote, When I was transferred to my last prison, Franklin said he wanted to help me out when I got out with a job and a house to live and a car. It was my fifth Christmas in prison. I thought it over and said, Franklin, you can't do this. It'll hurt you. The Grahams don't need my baggage. He looked at me and he said, Jim, you were my friend in the past. You are my friend now. If anyone doesn't like it, I'm looking for a fight. So when I got out of prison, the Grahams sponsored me and paid for a house for me to live in and gave me a car to drive. And the first Sunday out, Ruth Graham called the halfway house where I was staying with the Salvation Army and asked for permission for me to come to Montreat Presbyterian Church with her that Sunday morning. When I got there, the pastor welcomed me and sat me with the Graham family. There were like two rows of them. I think every Graham aunt, uncle, and cousin was there. The organ began playing and the place was full except for a seat next to me. Then the doors opened and in walked Ruth Graham. She walked down the aisle and sat next to inmate 07407-058. I had only been out of the prison 48 hours, but she told the world that morning that Jim Baker was her friend. Now, can I tell you all something? That, that's, that's, that's not the norm of how we treat people when they failed. It's really not. I wish it was, but it's really not. That's why this stands out, doesn't it? It stands out because, because of what Franklin and his family did for Jim Baker. So, how is it, how is it that we so quickly forget our own sin and pick up stones to hurl at people in condemnation? How does that happen? How does it happen that so often we're the ones dragging the woman or the man or someone trying to drag them before God's court for God to somehow execute them? All of you in this room, beginning with myself. All of us in this room are sinners. We deserve the death that awaits us. All of us have been under the wrath of God. His pronouncement of punishment on our sin is just and it's, 
and it's real, and, and we all know it because we all die. But then God, being rich in mercy, sends Jesus here to die for us, to bear in his life death so that in our death we might resurrect. Not because of the goodness found in us, but because of God's forgiveness of our sins in Jesus. So the Bible says, there is therefore now no condemnation. Let me say it again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God permanently removes my condemnation, my shame even. But not just for my past sin, for my present sin, for my future sin. And that's true for all of you, all of us here this morning. Hopefully you sin less today than you did yesterday. But you know, none of us are sinless. None of us, none of us somehow achieve this, this place where we never sin anymore. There's none good, no, not one. And if God was so gracious to you, and He doesn't condemn you for your sin, why would you stand on a street corner and shout out condemnation at someone else? Or why would you use your Facebook as a podium for shouting out condemnation of others? Why would you use your words, your attitudes, and your thoughts to condemn anyone if the Lord Jesus didn't do that? In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says this, If anyone thinks that Christians regard unchastity, sexual sin, as the supreme vice, he is quite wrong. The sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing and spoiling sport and backbiting, the pleasures of power, of hatred. For there are two things inside of me. There is an animal self and there is a diabolic self. And the diabolic self is the worst of the two. That is why a cold, self-righteous prude who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But of course, it's better to be neither. C.S. Lewis believed that the greatest sins were the sins of self-righteousness and the sins of condemning others. Now, I don't want you to miss what I'm about to say. It's really important that you catch this, okay? Sin does condemn us before God. It condemns every single person before God. It condemns us to an eternal death. The Bible says it's appointed for us all to die and then, and then the judgment. But Jesus came into the world to save us. Jesus came into the world so that we might be saved through him. But make no mistake, he's still going to judge. He's going to be the judge of the world. Now, when he's here in this life, he's not condemning or judging. He's going to judge. He's going to be the judge of all men. But right now, when he's here among us 2,000 years ago, he's not judging. He's not condemning. Paul tells Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. He is to do that, but when he was here, he wasn't doing that. He was not judging people. And, and so here's my point in that. My point is, why do we think we have to do it? Why do we think we have to be the person who, who spews condemnation on people? when Jesus himself in the flesh didn't do that. Even, even in the story, even in the story, Jesus is, is not doing that to this, to this woman. Now, 
Oh, I'm kind of off my notes, so I'm trying to figure out how to get back into what I want to say. There's two more things I want to say to you about this. I want to tell you about my own heart. I want to tell you how I try to live this reality out. And it comes from Romans 14. Here's what Paul told the church at Rome. And this, 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 I don't have a life verse, but this is how I try to live my life. Accept anyone who is weak in faith. But don't argue about disputed matters. One person believes he may eat anything while one who is weak eats only vegetables. One who eats must not look down on the one who does not eat. The one who does not eat must not judge the one who does because God has accepted him. Who are you to judge another man's, another's household servant? Before his own Lord, he stands or falls and he will stand because the Lord is able to make him stand. It's simply not my job to judge any of you. As to whether you belong to Christ or don't belong to Christ or, or what you do, it's, it's not my job to condemn any of you in that or to judge you as if I'm your judge to offer condemnation for you. That's just simply not my job. The problem is, and this is what I think, we, we love the sinful person, but we think that if I love the simple pers sinful person, if I don't somehow condemn them, then I'm supporting their sin. And here's what I think we have to come to grips with, that I can love you and I don't have to condemn you. And that doesn't mean that I'm supporting what you're doing or that I'm affirming that what you're doing is right, that somehow or another what you're doing is, is, is okay with God. I don't have to do that. I need to separate myself from that, but I don't need to separate myself from you. I can love you and I don't have to condemn you. This is what the Pharisees thought. They thought they had to throw stones at not just this woman, but everyone who didn't agree with them and who wasn't doing exactly like them. Somehow they found themselves as judges over all of them. Now I have to quickly say this because some of your minds are already thinking this. Are you saying, Jimmy, we should not confront sin? I am not saying that at all. We are very, very clearly in the Bible instructed to call out sin. To say this is wrong, this is wrong behavior, this is a wrong attitude, this is the wrong way to think, okay? This is sin, this is not pleasing to God. I have a responsibility to do that, okay? But it's not my responsibility to condemn them for doing that. And you say, well, what's the difference, Jimmy? Well, the difference is I love that person. And, and I don't have to, with my words or my action, actions, marginalize or, or throw stones at that person. I simply need to speak the truth and to speak it in love. Now, do, people separ do, do a lot of people separate that when you do one or the other? If, you, if, I, if I love you but still call out your sin, do people see the people who are maybe in that sin, do they see that difference? They don't see the difference. They don't see the difference all the time, right? I mean, they accuse us if, in other words, if I say that homosexuality is wrong, then it is morally wrong. If I say that if you're fornicating, you are sinning against God, and if you don't know what, we don't use the word anymore. If you're sleeping with your girlfriend or your boyfriend before you're married, you are sinning against God. That is morally wrong. Now, if I say that, then I'm accused of being some sort of hater. I, I get that, all right? But there's a difference between people... There's a difference between people accusing me of that and me actually throwing stones of condemnation at other people. Y'all might not agree with me. I don't, seem to, I don't seem to be getting a lot of nods with me here, but I do want you to hear me. I think this is so important. I think I'm right in what I'm saying. I think this is from the Spirit of God. There is a difference, and this is why they love Jesus so much. I mean, Jesus didn't go around saying everything you're doing is right. He said, don't sin anymore. 
I mean, he confronted them in their, in their sin, but there was something about the way he treated them that showed them dignity and respect, and, and, and he wasn't setting himself up to condemn them, even though they'll one day stand before him and be condemned by him apart from their faith in him. All right? Listen to Paul. This is how he tells us to confront sin. Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out your, for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Carry out, one another, carry out one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if, if anyone considers himself to be something, when he's nothing, he deceives himself. I might add, I think Paul's saying, if anyone thinks himself to be like a judge over everybody else, you know, he deceives himself. So, so here's the Lord Jesus, excuse me, here's the Apostle Paul speaking through the Holy Spirit, telling us, when you confront people in their sin, do it with gentleness, do it with kindness, do it with love. And you, you, might, you might argue back and push back and say, well, Jimmy, wait a minute, that's, that's talking about us within the body of Christ, that's how we should treat one another. But I don't have to treat lost people that way. I think you do. I think you do. I think you do because I think that's how Jesus treated the people who did not know him or follow him yet. Why do you think, and this is a rhetorical question, but I'm going to try to answer my own question. Why do you think we who follow Jesus are so quick, so often, to condemn others? Why, do we, why we who have been forgiven, why are we so quick to condemn others and want to see them condemned or whatever when we ourselves have been forgiven? I think it's for one of two reasons. I think it's because we don't understand our own sinfulness before God. Or we don't understand the mercy and grace of God that's been given to us through Christ. I don't, one of those two things have to be it. So this morning, here's my challenge. My challenge is for all of us, beginning with myself, to empty my pockets of all of my stones that I throw at people. I, I want you to empty your pockets this morning of, of emotional and spiritual stones that we all too often throw at people in condemnation of, of them. And I want to share with you five stones that I'm going to ask you to, to get rid of this morning. The first is, and I know I'm speaking metaphorically, but hopefully you're going to follow me. Would you drop the stone of unforgiveness? Would you, some of you walking around, your pockets are filled with stones of unforgiveness. Stones that you hurl at people every time you remember how they did you wrong or something they did for you. And, and we refuse, and we refuse to release them from our emotional unforgiving prison. I want to ask you to empty your pocket of unforgiveness stones this morning. Those things that, that you desire to hold against people. Would you release, release those stones? I mean, just literally take them out of your pocket. Who, who are you hurling stones of unforgiveness at? That is a question for you. Who are you hurling stones of unforgiveness at? That's probably not good English because no, no, sentence never ends in at, right? But I don't know how to say it any other way. Who are you throwing stones of unforgiveness toward? I'm laughing, but this is serious. Who have you not forgiven that you need to forgive? Seriously. Would you drop the stones of, of isolation? Some of you run around, maybe it's not for unforgiveness, but you think it's not unforgiveness, but it is. But how many of you got stones, pockets filled with stones of isolation? 
And you, you throw stones of isolation at people. You cut them off relationally. You say, well, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I haven't, I'm, I've forgiven them. But you isolate yourself from them. You cut them off. You, 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 you put them away from yourself. You separate yourself from them for what they did. Or, or it's, a, it's a form of, con, of condemning them because they've done something wrong to you. And some of you got pockets full of isolating stones that you hurl at people. And you know who they are. You see them coming and you throw the stone at them. And what that means, lacking practice, it means you run the other way. It means you, 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 you take a different aisle. You, you, don't, you, you make sure you don't have to talk to them or see them. Some of you are casting stones of isolation at people. Would you drop the stones of harsh, judgmental statements? I, I tell you, we, you know, we use our words to try to hurt people. I mean, the Westboro Church, I mean, it's all about using words to try to hurt people. But we don't have to be the Westboro Church to use words that are harsh and judgmental and condemning and, 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 and hurl them at people. You know what I found? I found face-to-face it's sometimes harder to throw those words. And you guys hear me harp on this a lot, but it's just so sad to me. We hurl those words with our typewriters on social media. We say all kinds of things against the other political party than us. And we just say horrible things about people. People made in the image of God. People that God loves. People that we judge as somehow, I mean, they're just the scum of the earth, right? Well, I tell you what, folks, those people are people Jesus died for. And those are the people that Jesus says that we are not to condemn. How about emptying your pockets out of those judgmental words that you hurl at people? Here's another one. Drop the stone of pride and superiority. When we condemn, we always throw a stone that I'm better than you. If I'm throwing stones at you, whatever kind of stone it is, it's because I think I'm better than you. I think I've somehow achieved or arrived at some place because of maybe, it's because of Jesus, but I'm in a better place than you are. You know, Jesus is, Jesus is all our righteousness. I don't, care how, I don't care what kind of righteousness you might have in your practice. I mean, it does not add to Jesus' righteousness. This, this is what it means to be a Christian if you don't know this, okay? The being a Christian is that I've substituted my sinfulness for His righteousness. Do I want to follow in His righteousness? Do I want to live practically righteous? Yes. But does my practical righteousness add to what Jesus has done? It does not. I had lunch with a brother this week who, you know, most of his growing up life, right, he measured himself by doing all these things that his parents and his church told him he needed to do. And he always measured himself by how much better he was than other people. Until one day he discovered that really it's not about what I do or what rules I keep or whatever, but it's about trusting in the righteousness of Jesus. I really want to ask you to throw away your stones of pride and superiority because you are not better. You're, 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 not, you're not more spiritual. You're not more righteous. You, you, you don't, you don't, God doesn't love you more than He loves Johnny who's still caught up in his sin and who hasn't been redeemed yet by Jesus. God doesn't love you more than He loves Johnny. I'm, I'm, I'm fully convinced of that. So I ask you to throw your stones of pride and superiority away. And then the final stone, and then I'm actually finished with this, is, um, you know that gossip stone? That gossip stone where we won't say harsh things and hard things to somebody to their face, but I'll tell Ann all about you. 
with condemning language and words. Boy, if you just knew what a scoundrel that person was. Now, I hope they don't really do that. I'm just saying, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not just, a, <laughs> that was an illustration, okay? That was an illustration. I, I try very hard not to do that. And, uh, and, but, but it's really easy to fall into. James says your tongue is the hardest thing to control, right? Before you know it, you're gossiping about other people and you're condemning them and you're hurling stones of gossip at them by telling other people's stuff to hurt them and make them look bad, even if it's true. You know, if it's true, folks, and the other person doesn't have any need to know it, that's gossip. That's, that's, that's wrong. That's wrong. Jesus asked the woman, do none of your accusers condemn you? Neither do I condemn you. Uh, my challenge to us this morning is to put down our stones and to not condemn others. Stand for righteousness. Love people. Love people. Make them, you know, we are, the, we are some of you might disagree with this, but we are God's Israel. And in the same way that he called Old Testament Israel to be the, the living nation that would demonstrate his glory and honor, we are the living nation that is the temple of God. And in this day, whether it's only for a while or whether it's till the end, right, we are the nation that is supposed to represent what it means to know and love and follow Jesus. And I want to urge you all to love people. Stand for righteousness. Speak the truth. Some are going to misunderstand. Some are still going to call you uh, hate mongers, etc. But don't let it ever be true that you are a hate monger in the way you treat others. Everybody get it? Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, thank you for Jesus, who is such a, such a living, was such a living testimony to us in his earthly existence here on our planet. Lord, his, his life was such a testimony and such an example of how we're to be. Lord Jesus, from, from heaven, Spirit of God, would you help us live like you? Would you help us be like you? Would you help us stand for truth and righteousness, speak the truth in love, help us to love people, help us to leave the condemning to you? Lord, teach us to, to guard our tongues. Lord, help us put down those stones of unforgiveness, the stones of isolation, the stones of gossip, the stones of, of self-righteousness and, and arrogance and pride and superiority. Lord, may we put all of those things down and humbly represent you. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Be blessed.